You found the No Proscenium podcast, a show about immersive theater, interactive events, and other experiments in live entertainment. I'm Noah Nelson, the founder of No Proscenium, which started out as a newsletter about these things and has branched out into other forms, like this very podcast. This is our first official episode, and it features Julianne Just and Genevieve Gearhart, the co-founders of Los Angeles's The Speakeasy Society, a theater company that specializes in immersives. They're the folks behind The Stronger and Ebenezer, two shows I've loved and some of the best work I've had a chance to see here in L.A. Their latest show, The Quick and the Dead, will launch in Pasadena later this month. It's the first part in what they're calling The Johnny Cycle, but we'll get to all that in a moment. This podcast has been made possible by the generous donations of our Patreon backers, including Jeff Leinenweber, Jay Bushman, and Marcy Hume. If you enjoy the podcast, I hope you'll consider backing the show. Check out all the details at patreon.com slash noproscenium. I'll have more details about how you can find No Proscenium online after the interview. But now, enjoy the program. I'm here with the founders of Los Angeles's The Speakeasy Society. And so you can track their voices as easily as I can. I'm going to have them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Genevieve. Give, go ahead and give your full name. Oh, hi. I'm, I'm Genevieve Gearhart. Okay. And uh, I'm Julianne Just. And we're both looking at the laptop as if it was a human being. Like, it's they so are. true. And I am as well. Because <laughs> I'm watching the levels, but that's something else entirely. You can see me through that, right? That's what's kind happening. Kind of. You know, I, I could break the phone out and we could periscope part of this. And maybe, maybe we will. Um, I thought about that. There's a version, there's a way to live stream these things. I don't think I can record and, and live stream. Yeah. Oh, I guess I can get the phone and live stream. Anyway, I don't want to overtake this. I don't. So, um,. So one of you, uh, uh, Julianne or, or, or Genevieve, go ahead and uh, explain explain to the listening audience for those for those who haven't been to a Speakeasy Society show, explain what the troupe is, and then I'll have some more questions. I'm being I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm like holding my mug, I'm like being really informal today. I don't know what's wrong with me, uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, explain the troupe if you could. I'm curious too how you guys see it. So um, the Speakeasy Society were. Uh, theatrical entertainment company that looks to create um, live, immersive, site-specific performance experiences for um, audiences of different ages. Um, Our pieces, in terms of content, can really vary, but the one thing that we try to be really consistent about is creating unique live experiences, um, and that those experiences are not only just things you watch, but things that are engaging uh, multiple senses. Um, and that your role within those experiences is potentially expanded beyond just that of a traditional viewer. All right. That's pretty good. Get <laughs> the elevator pitch down. Do you do that a lot? Not, not as much as I should be doing. <laughs> How, okay, so you two are the founders. So, so give me a little, I mean, there's a couple of ways we could get into this. And, and I think, I mean, the listeners are going to be interested maybe kind of in, in in the nuts and bolts of, of how you guys work, but like I'm, I'm curious as much about your story. So, how did you two well, connect? It, it's very romantic and, and very long. Um, we actually met back in New York. Uh, it was 
was on 2006. 2006. Uh, we were both right out of undergrad and had moved to the city. Uh, we went to different schools, and there was a mutual collaborator who was looking to start a theater company, um, as many people right out of undergrad who've just moved to New York decide to do. Um, and uh, the company actually started out as a you know, you put the call out, hey, who wants to do this? And maybe, you know, I think the first meeting was like 16 to 20 people. Yeah, it was a big definitely. group. Oh, wow. But within, you know, four months, once the, you know, unglamorous uh, work of, you know, starting a company and the realities of just getting started starts to kick in and the fact that it takes time, uh, very quickly the company went down to a real core group of about four people, uh, two of which were Genevieve and myself. <laughs> Yeah, and so from there, we worked under the name Mirror Productions. We worked in that company, which was, um, we, our style of theater was very broad. Since there were four of us, we all kind of were interested in different things. So we kind of committed to producing a piece per person, a season, as long as someone else in the company was willing to produce it. And as you know, as uh, mission statements are, you know, you can make a really broad mission statement that can encapsulate basically anything that comes its way. And as a company, <laughs> and it's not a negative thing. It's no. like the company was open to doing a lot of different sorts of work, mm -hmm. and we were very different artists who made up the company. And so the the work was like broad. You did an Ibsen reading at one point, and I was working on movement based theater. We did, you know, a version of. We did a, a very realistic kind of two-handed, um, you know, living room drama, you know, Shakespeare adaptations. It, it was all over the board. But we worked there for a couple years for about two and a half, three seasons there. And then the company just started to dismantle. Everyone had their own interests. And um, one of our founding members decided to go to grad school for film and Julianne and I just kind of looked at each other and said, well, we really love working together. We love doing this. Let's keep it up, just the two of us. And so we produced our first show together and we co-directed the show together because we had worked so well on all the other projects. And, um, and I think that's definitely something that's been unique in our relationship is we pretty much co-direct almost everything and um, a lot of people at least when I talk to them uh, ask about that you know how can you share that mantle like is it does it become a problem like what happens when you don't agree on things and you know strangely it's never really a huge problem you know uh, and I always think it makes the work stronger in a way because you, you it becomes really clear where what is a good idea for the piece and what is just something that you personally think is a good idea yeah. and that you're kind of attached to. Yeah. And um, it actually forces you to let go of things that maybe you wanted but weren't actually serving the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we hold each other to that a lot. So, um, But not only were we directing together, we were producing the piece together. And that's, you know, a big part of of running a company, right? Oh, yeah. And we did everything we, we needed to do to produce that. We yeah. sold all of our clothes at one point on the streets of Brooklyn to help produce one of our pieces that we did. But we, we did that. An early form of crop. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Julianne decided that she was interested in, in going to grad school for directing. And she ended up coming to Kellett's, moving to L.A., to attend CalArts, and I stayed in New York, 
and kept working mostly as an actor at that point because I kind of lost my partner in crime and um, it didn't take her very long to convince me that I needed to come to Los Angeles and also go to CalArts. <laughs> and so she, she convinced me because I had told her, like, oh, I'm kind of interested in grad school. And I said, but, you know, I have all this experimental training. I need a very classical program. And she was like, well, just audition for CalArts. It's good practice. It'll be good practice for you. And she knew the whole time because they got me in that audition and they won me from the moment I walked in the room with their program. And I think that's, you know, that was our next step together. Then we both ended up at CalArts. And we already spoke the same language from working together. And CalArts, I think, just strengthened that. And not only were we able to continue working together as partners, directing work, I assistant directed some of Julianne's shows, I choreographed some of her shows at CalArts. She got to direct me in shows at CalArts. So we were able to continue our working relationship, but then also meet a greater pool of collaborators, right. which I think for us has, for me, that was one of the best parts about going to CalArts is I found my people. And the people and, who yeah. I'm most excited about. And I think those people, I mean, uh, Speakeasy is, we kind of notoriously, our shows are either very tiny or very large in terms of the number of collaborators. So, for example, our, our current show, you know, our, our collaborative team is between 25 and 30 people. It's big. And, wow. um, you know, we would not... And that's for the first part of the Johnny Cycle. <laughs> and yes. that's for part one, yeah. Johnny Cycle, The Quick and the Dead. Um, but, you know, we would not be able to assemble that scale of a team, I think, without, without CalArts, without the community that came out of that. And, um, you know, we were in two different programs, which was really helpful because Genevieve was really, um, you know, I met actors, but she was part of this actor community, really able to kind of spread, <laughs> spread the word there. And I was getting a chance to really work and meet a lot of the designers. So coming out, we, I think between the two of us had a, a, a large base of people to start um, trying to fold in or entice to to work on this sort of work with us. So was there a point like during your CalArts tenure where you you knew that this was the chance to like reform a company and and, and like and, and oh, did it become conscious like all right you get the actors I'll get the designers go or did you just find yourself falling in and sort of like all well, what else are we gonna do? I, I think it was more the the, the second <laughs> you know you get you get close to graduation you're in this great creative bubble that is grad school and you know um, you're getting ready to and make an entry back into the real world and uh, uh, you know in we learned so much with the first company in New York you know mm -hmm. I really do value those years yeah. because I think it taught us a lot of really important lessons that um, going into this second kind of creating the company um, I think I think we've taken a lot of that and expanded on so where our mission statement was very broad in New York we were doing all sorts of work you know here the speakeasy society is committed to making a very particular sort of um, theater and uh, it's not that we aren't interested in other sorts of theater it's not that even as individual artists we aren't practicing in other ways but this company is about producing a specific sort of experience and that's something we really work hard to, to stay focused as a company yeah. on is this isn't a producing house for whatever we want to make it's for a certain sort of work under this under this title so I think that was a big thing yeah. well, a big and I, shift and I know when you and I have talked before and you said you know like at the end of the day, you know, you've been sitting in your day job all day and you don't want to, you don't want to yeah. sit, you know, in, in the show. So when did that turn to this immersive 
environmental installation style theater happen? Like, what was it? <laughs> so while we were at CalArts, Julianne was in her last year. And as a final, final in her final year, she was uh, given the opportunity to teach a class at CalArts. So she taught a directing class. And so I was able to take that class. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is just... Easy A. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the one thing about, you know, being an actor at CalArts is, like, I was very focused on on my trajectory and training as an actor. So right. this was a way for me to get back into working on my skills as a director, and I thought, like, great. She's going to, all the exercises that Julianne is going to put forth are things that I'm going to want to work on. Mm-hmm. So while we were while we were in that class, you gave an assignment, and I don't remember exactly what the assignment was. It was a scene from Macbeth. Oh, I had, a single had to, scene. We had to do a single. I had to do a single scene from Macbeth, and, and it, I think it did. It might have had to be the witches. I don't remember if that was. Yeah, I if can't. it was a pick a scene or that specific. Yeah. So I started working on a piece that we called eventually Bathroom Macbeth, which was the witches. In a bathroom at CalArts with, you know, including the reveal of a handicapped toilet cauldron. (laughs) So, um, yeah, that was just a seed of an idea that I worked on um, in her class and... Yeah, and in the initial, I mean, when I remember as part of the class, you know, people would have a week to make something shared, and then we would talk about it. Pretty simple, normal class structure, right? And uh, it was just the first scene. It was that first witch scene, which, you know, is about 10 lines long. And it's like, um, you know, we went into the bathroom to see this piece, and it was just like, this is exciting. It's, you know, it's. Um, it's just exciting to be in this bathroom. <laughs> I mean, everything else was exciting too, but there was something about she had very specifically made the faucet drip. It was a choice, you know, and uh, there was something about being in a bathroom with the lights off, hearing the faucet drip, and I was just like, I'm in. Like, I'm in. I'm in it, you know. I, I'm open. It just said there's something about changing the viewing space that it made me more willing to go with it to mm-hmm. like kind of take the leap and and it was just exciting and um, and so from from that initial class piece they have a new works festival there so I was like this is great let's develop let's, it let's develop it so we turned it into um, a like a 20 minute piece that covers kind of the entire witches cycle in Macbeth so it's kind of Macbeth from the, you know, a witch-centric Macbeth. That's how I was kind of called it. It's, mm. it's, it, it goes through their major scenes. Macbeth, uh, Banquo make an appearance. Hecate makes an appearance. But it really starts with their first scene and kind of ends with, um, you know, when the cauldron scene happens and leads to the apparitions and kind of Macbeth hearing his, his future. So um, that was our kind of initial piece. And um, after I graduated, I had met up with some, some very... Um, cool people who were doing work at the Moose Lodge in Glendale, and it, it was a fascinating kind of beautiful, old, decaying space. It's been worked on a lot now. It's a very sharp space now, but at that time, it had a lot of just like um, charm. Like it, yeah. it, it, it was, it was what you'd want to design the set to look like, except it was just all real. Yeah. And um, and they were really trying, making a push at that point to maybe make the, it more of like a, a home for the arts. And so they kind of gave us permission to do an event there 
And so it was like, oh, it has a great bathroom. Let's 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 do let's, let's do bathroom Macbeth again. <laughs> uh, by that point, we'd renamed it the Weird Sisters. And we then expanded, because it was a huge building, we expanded to kind of take over the whole first floor with all these different um, characters from Macbeth. So we had five different uh, Lady Macbeths, each in these kind of physical vignettes happening in different parts of the space. Um, We had Lady Macduff and her son and the murderer. Um, So we had all these different elements from Macbeth that you could sort of walk through, travel between, experience at your leisure. They were kind of on cycles. And then we had this 20-minute actual piece that you could then experience as a set kind of item. And the, and the strangely, I feel like all of our work in New York, we didn't do anything that was considered immersive. No. We were doing more exper- experimental work, but it was in a very traditional setup. And I think we just had so much fun with that first piece. Yeah. It was It was so different than anything that we had worked on before. That it just hooked us. And, and I, I what, also, year, what year was the, the, the Weird Sisters? Uh, that was, uh, so we, we did it at Kellarts in the spring of 2012, and then we did it at the Moose Lodge in, uh, right around Halloween okay. in 2012. Um, and, and, you know, but it really links to space, too, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, part of, you know, I love New York City. Living there was amazing. If I was super rich, I would go back. Um, but coming to LA, you know, it um, LA has space and and time in a way that New York doesn't. I'm not saying that space is cheap here or that people aren't super busy, but in a way, it's it's a little looser than New York, and there's a little more room for for exploration. And that was the big thing in New York is to get a space to. To rent a space costs so much money, and so you'd rent this black box, but then you would have spent all this money to get the black box, and then you would have nothing to transform it. And it's like a black box is this new, supposed to be this neutral space, even though the space still exists, but we're pretending it doesn't because we painted it black. And so I guess there was something about Los Angeles where it was like, I, I was really, you know, these spaces, it's like we don't want to hide them. We're not, we're... Um, anything we add to them, it's it's about adding to the space and growing mm. off of what's already in it. And somehow Los Angeles kind of opened that door for us, mm. and uh, we've been trying to kind of run with it. I feel like Speakeasy, we are really excited about the work, but it's also like Los Angeles is responding to it and yeah. providing opportunity for it. And so we are, it, it kind of was saying like, hey, go 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 down this path, you know? And, and there's something about this style of working where you get into that conversation, not just with the texts, but with the space, mm-hmm. right? Because, like, the texts are always both jumping off point and limiting factor. You know, the, the, the center of gravity pull you back in. And, you know, a proscenium or a black box is so neutral that it doesn't have that kind of gravitational pull that starts to like move you in certain directions but when when you're dealing with a space that has really unique characteristics you start thinking like oh well this could go here or or this suggests this kind of action and it starts to inform and and because it's it it's you know a real space has a real flow to it it feels right because well of course someone had to come out of there to the point where you can even start to anticipate you know, mm-hmm. or if you can mask what's going on in space, you can create a sense of surprise. Like, oh, I didn't know there was a space behind well, and, I, and I think in our next piece, you know, we've taken it even a step further. So we're doing it at the American Legion in Old Town pa- uh, Pasadena mm-hmm. Post 13. And we're doing um, this adaptation of um, Johnny Got His Gun. And so it's in some ways it 
the the location speaks to the material and the material speaks to the location. So, you know, when I went to look at that site, it was like literally you are on the street and the gate you enter into the building is exciting. You know, just like waiting for the person to show up to let me in. I was just like, this gate, this gate is amazing. Like, I wouldn't have stopped, though, to look at this gate and really take time to experience it, though, had I not been brought to that space. Right. And I guess that's part of what we're doing is um, we're inviting you to these spaces. We're inviting you to consider it. So you go through this gate, and then there's this hallway with um, these cases of war memorabilia. And it's like, that's not part of our piece, but it's part of our piece. And it's like, actually, we you know, we couldn't have designed that better in a way. Yeah. Um, and so it's really, it's just exciting to get to work with those, to work with those elements as part of the story, to try to create this total experience, yeah. right? Where, so walking in the gate, walking down this hall, walking up the staircase, it's, it feels like a designed experience, but really it's just experiencing a space and, yeah. and being conscious in a space. And that's something that, um, I think a lot of times we have to be asked to do, you know, it's, it's someone has to invite you, be conscious of this. I, I feel like um, this becomes an argument with like art a lot. Like someone will say, that's not art. It's just a crushed can. And it's like, I could have done that. And it's like, yes, you could have, but you didn't do it and ask me to think about it. You know, I guess yeah. it's this kind of, it's being put there to be thought about whether you like it or not. Yeah. That's, that's different, but it's being asked to, for you to consider it. And so I guess that is a lot of what we're setting up with these experiences is we're trying to set it up so that you're you're being conscious throughout the experience from beginning to end. And then there's something about that intent of design, right? You crush the can, you can like throw it in a trash can, and then the intent was, oh, it's in a trash can. Crush the can, and you put it in the middle of like a blank table, and it's like, oh, that's a lot different. Like it asks at least one question, was that intentional or is someone just really messy? But... <laughs> But this 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 phenomenon of, of being shown what you don't know is already there, that's one of the things that was so magical um, about the, there's an, there was an alternate reality game in San Francisco called um, the Games of Nonchalance. It was, it was also known as the Jejun Institute or the Institute. And one of the things fascinating about that thing was the, the, the opening act of it was essentially a... Uh, scavenger hunt through Chinatown in San Francisco. But they had hidden some stuff in there to like make it extra weird. But just the act of going through Chinatown, particularly if you were uh, a Bay Area native and like going to Chinatown, unless you were from Chinatown, was like just ridiculous. You're like, that's what tourists do. Like mm-hmm. leave, leave the people who live there alone. Like, I'm not going to wander around. But it's like getting invited in, you suddenly are seeing things you never saw before. Like you're walking past buildings you've walked past a thousand times before and now you're seeing them with fresh eyes. And and the idea that there is an American Legion post in Pasadena is like, there is? Really? Like, oh, I had no idea. No idea. Well, I think um, it always makes me think of, you know, the subway. Um, and I always forget what stop it is in New York. But they've got those little signs on the ground that are like, look up. take oh, it." Yeah. And on one level, you're in New York and you're like busting your ass to get to work. And you're like, oh, screw them. But then on the other side, you're like, oh, no, look up. Like, what on earth is around me? And, and I think that's something I find so much is it's so easy to just be tunnel visioned in your life. And, um, you know, to just to just look up look around, you know, there, there is a story and everything in a space, you know, and, and so how do we encourage, you know, it's about setting up spaces to encourage people to do that in many ways. Um, 
you know, and that's how I see see the the work. And it's it's what I look for in a lot in work. It's not that I don't like seeing traditional work as well, but as I've said to you before, you know, I I, I spend a lot of time sitting at a computer, and it's it's a relief to be up. It's a relief mm-hmm. to be moving through something. Um, and it doesn't mean that the content needs to be easy. Um, it doesn't mean that it needs to just be entertaining, but it's, it, for me, it's like engagement. I just want to be engaged and I want it more, more than just my eyes being engaged. Yeah. You know, I had this whole rant about how, you know, screens used to be our escape. You know, we used to we used to go to a movie theater to watch something on a screen. We used to gather on the television to watch something on the screen. Now screens are our shackle. Like the screens are constantly. So the only way to escape the screen is to you know be told like put that down, come over here. You know, t- look at these people. Don't look at that mm-hmm. thing. Um, uh, talk to me a bit though about how how you do sort of that engagement, how you design for people because it's not just about the space. It's also about that like the line of interaction or the line of engagement with the audience. And actually that's something I'm curious, like you're in your own language. Do you talk about interaction? Do you talk about engagement? Like what's some of your thought process when you start breaking down a piece of material and how you're going to activate the audience? I think, you know, how we usually start lately, especially we've been doing a lot of workshopping material. So often we're starting from some sort of source text. We gather a group of collaborators together and we just start creating experiences and we we don't necessarily devise ideas before we try them we just give people assignments give ourselves assignments and say create an experience for one person create an experience for a group create something where the audience is involved in some way and we do a lot of experimenting and we use our collaborators as test audience members and really see how people respond and it it takes a lot of it's a lot of trial and error to to really figure out kind of how the puzzle pieces fit and what type of interaction makes sense for what type of content and the the scene that's happening so well, and I was going to say, you know, Genevieve mentioned these workshops, and what's great about the workshops, though, is we're working really quickly. So mm-hmm. we're not um, laboring over an idea for an extended period of time to just find it doesn't work when you introduce the audience member. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times we'll be setting up an exploration where, for example, it'll be like the character of Johnny. So you, um, you're going to pick a scene and you're going to. Um, create it three different, distinctly different ways. And in one, the audience member should be Johnny and another someone can represent, you know, where we're, we're playing with that and people really quickly are mocking up an experience. And very quickly, there's a test audience member testing that dynamic. And I think that's been really useful for exploring interaction and engagement in a way where you know, you can have an idea of how the audience is going to work in that role. Right. Doesn't but, mean that but until yeah. you actually give someone the the instructions, verbal or nonverbal, whether it's for them to figure out through the clues you've laid out how it works, or you, until you have someone in it doing it who did not create it, um, you don't know how it's going to work. So that's something we're really trying. The fur, the further we try to take the engagement, the more we're trying to test out how it works very early on and make it really a essential part 
of the what? storytelling. And when you say when you say very quickly, I mean, are you talking? I mean, go back to like the, the class. Like you had a you know, here's the assignment. You have a week and then show. I mean, even shorter. Fast? It's like uh, make three scenes in thirty minutes. Go. Um, so it is. It is fast, and, and then you're holding like an audience member, like like in, like in a secluded room. We we have Jack in a secluded room, ready to ready to go through each of yours, and he'll tell you which one you like the best. Right? Well, usually, the audience members are one of us. So right. usually, um, we'll these design based on what we're needing. You know, what sort of content we're needing to fill out, what points in the story we design. You know, both very open and yet very specific kind of uh, sets of of cues for people to start playing with Mm. um but you know part of it is is that um it forces you to go right to what is the core of the idea what is the core of the dynamic you're setting up and let's see what it actually is to have someone step into that Mm. and it's um you know it's it's amazing how quickly how how useful it is you so quickly gauge what was exciting in that and what really doesn't work and what are what are the very actually essential adjustments you could make to make this more successful? Um, it, it, I mean, it, it just reveals so much because the audience is so key to this form. Yeah. Um, you know, it would be, it, you know, it, it's a mistake to work on on this in a vacuum. In a vacuum, no and then after you know right. two months, invite an audience in and hope it's going to go <laughs> go well because you'll have perfected something that as soon as you put this element in the audience, which the audience, even the, the most well-behaved audience is, um, it's not, not, not everything's going to go as planned. Yeah. It just, it just can't. Um, so part of the planning has to be having the audience and learning what to plan for. I, I keep, I keep thinking that if, that if we could, I like, guess as a, as a larger LA community establish sort of a, a beta workshop series sort of the way like game testers have like game like beta testing nights you know and where we something like the a little bit of like the initiated crowd like people have done this sort of stuff before and then also always like telling like yeah bring a couple of friends who've never Mm -hmm. experienced this kind of thing because we need raw newbies and then letting the companies whether it's you guys or chalk or or you know, or, or Jamie Peterson running around doing something to just like, all right, here's your guinea pigs. You know, you know, you've got guinea pigs on May 19th, mm-hmm. right? Um, I keep thinking that might be a fun thing to do for, for everybody. But one thing I'm curious about is, I don't know why I qualify my statements like that. And then I get self-conscious of it. One thing I'm curious about mm-hmm. is the difference between something like Ebenezer, which, you know, is, is a, in my parlance, a sandbox piece mm-hmm. where you've got people kind of floating and, and, and everything needs to run whether or not someone's in that room. And there were definitely moments when I saw it when like I walked in, say, like the school room, I'm like, oh, there isn't really anybody in here. It's like just me for a second. And they're like, they're going, you know, the scene's running. And then and then the, the methodology of, of that and then the methodology of something like The Stronger, which I had the pleasure of getting to see you as the primary monologue August in um are they are, are the do the same techniques in terms of development hold as just one just sort of a ma- microcosm of the other or is there something about the 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 open kind of box where you can sort of run things as its own engine and and leave a little bit less room for the the audience focus as opposed to how, well, I guess the weird thing is, is like the stronger you've got your job of of delivering the monologue and and of acting, but you've also got your partner in the scene and the audience member who's sort of 
the other scene partner mm-hmm. to kind of play into? Uh, is it is it? Is there a question even there? No. I just, well, <laughs> well I can tell you one thing. Okay. <laughs> As a performer, <laughs> I have I have performed in both the stronger and Ebenezer. Yes. I, I've never had a full role on Ebenezer. I've I've covered for people on nights that they couldn't be there because right. we love certain performers so much that we're willing to stick me in. <laughs> um, but uh, You're not just the co-founder, you're also the understudy. So. I, I understudy every single role, basically. Um, but The Stronger is by far one of the most terrifying performing experiences I've ever had. Mm. It is intense. Mm. Let's talk about this. It is very intense because it is just you your scene partner who can't say anything to give away a little bit of the stronger and the audience member. And it is very, a very intimate experience and it is never the same in a way that Ebenezer is, it's never going to be the same either, but it is a little, there are more people there. Even when you're one-on-one, there's something very free about Ebenezer. Um, because you could switch your focus, yeah. Right, like absolutely. it's like, oh, this guy's not playing along. Will will that gal play along? Yes, she will. Let's. And roll. and if worst case scenario, I, I, you know, someone gave me a hard time, I can be like, good night. I'm going over there. You know. <laughs> um, but with the stronger, it's really it's you, and it's a lot of pressure, and you never know what they're gonna. The audience member is going to say how they're gonna react to what you're saying. Some audience members clearly wanted to slap me. As as the monologist, uh, as the as the as the character wouldn't wanted to slap the character because they did not agree with what I was saying. Other people were so just they empathized. Yeah. Um, but it's like, who? If anything goes off track in the stronger, which if it's almost if we're doing our job, something will. Right. It it's you. It's you out there. And you gotta be on your toes, and you really gotta live in that character because you got you gotta everything's gotta be on point. And, you, and there, it's a emotional, it's emotional content, and it's very serious content. You know, in Ebenezer, it, some of it is, but some of it's very much like a party. Yeah, too. It's With, a playful piece, and yeah. there's an element of play in the space, both for performers, for audience, yeah. and the and, audience can escape too. Like the, the, mm-hmm. the reverse is like the kind of good night. Yeah, like for you, it's the same the audience to be like, oh, ah, this is not for me. I'm gonna get a beer. Here? I'm gonna get a beer. What's over here? Yeah, or no, the full checkout. Like I'm just gonna get a beer and, and hang no. out at the bar, yeah. right? Which is which I don't know why. You know, though, but that was interesting. Someone was talking to me about their experience afterwards. And um, they're a little less mobile, and uh, mm. and you know they. I saw them moving, you know, exploring around and stuff. But at a certain point, they were just kind of hanging in the in the bar area, enjoying and, that atmosphere. And, and and afterwards, they commented on how much they really loved just being in the atmosphere. You know, uh, we had uh, uh, Miss Fezziwig. Um, she was kind of singing these lounge songs, and he was he was really amazed where it wasn't about her. She was performing, but performing in a way that added to an overall picture that wasn't about her. You know, she wasn't doing yeah. some giant solo that was about at this moment everyone in the space look at me. I'm yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm singing my solo, and 
and he was just like it was just so amazing to be in that because it's almost like that is what you want every time you go to a bar right without a performance you want yeah. that perfect moment where yeah. the space is kind of singing to you and you're sitting there and taking it in and visually it's beautiful and the audio is beautiful and you're just present um, and that was really exciting to me because, you know, sometimes as a director, you get nervous where you're like, why? They're not, why? They're, they're not walking around. They're not, they're not the exploring <laughs> the, the content or the space. They're missing everything. Yeah. Maybe they're unhappy. Maybe they're not having, you know, an enjoyable or rich experience. And so that was really, um, that was really exciting to hear that actually the experience is, is, is bigger and broader and can be done in more ways than even I was thinking about at the, yeah. you know, in the moment. I think there's something, I think both the, the, the thing that I, that I didn't articulate a question on, but that got us on this path is there's something about sort of how inf initiated the audience is into this sort of stuff, how, how much the, the environment that's, that's built, that's designed. And I don't mean like the physical, but I mean like, you know, the, 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 the that merger of the performers and the physical, how much of that, creates a space for the audience to like relax into. And I started thinking about how like the Disney kids, meaning the kids with passes that I know, which includes myself, um, you know, we'll just go, right. No, we'll, 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 all of us. <laughs> you know, we might just go to say the Carthay circle yeah. in, yeah, who are all, yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> and just sit and drink at California adventure for like an hour or two because it's such a wonderful space. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you can just relax into it. And like, you're, and in those spaces, you're not even seeing something really fascinating ever. You're just seeing like tourists, unless you really like watching people, which case you're saying nothing but fascinating, but you're just seeing tourists from across the country, but it's a design space and it just feels like it, it couldn't exist anywhere else in the world. And there's something about this sort of material. Well, and I think there's something too about, um, and like the fantasy of the experience, yeah. right? Like, Chasing um, that moment. like, well, it's like, I think about like as a kid watching Labyrinth, and she winds up at the masquerade ball, and it's like, I want to be at that masquerade ball. Yeah, they hold um, it every year here in LA, Yeah, right? but that's the thing. They hold it every year, but it's also like, I, I'm i not a big party person. So it's like, actually, I don't just want to be at a masquerade party. I want to be at this curated experience that's going to have the actual suspense and magic and danger and everything that's in that scene. And what makes that scene yeah. so exciting is not just that it's a masquerade party. It's the story that's led to this point. It's, exactly. it's the weight of the people in this room and the stakes. And so I feel like it's that's kind of it's it's hopefully creating things that on one level feel like the social events and experiences we want in our own our own life like I think about I'm a big mystery fan mm. and like the desire to get caught up in some really um, intense mystery that's exciting to me but I'm also super cautious like I don't want my life to be threatened I don't want to ever actually feel like I'm in danger but I so want, you're not setting up for the game but but yeah. I do want to feel like I'm in danger and in the back of my mind know that this is curated know yeah. that this is safe know that this has been designed um, a designed experience. And so if I feel scared, it's because they've set me up to feel scared. Right. And, and, um, and so, and it, it, and then because it's a curated experience, you're getting the best of everything, right? Like, yeah. I think that's a little, like, sometimes it's like you, I feel like that happens a lot with like costume design stuff where people think they know what like the forties looks like. And then there's someone's like, no, 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 this is accurate 40 costumes. And it's like, it's not quite what I wanted. And it's like, <laughs> Oh, you wanted this almost like mediated best of the forties, your favorite elements of the forties. And yeah. to me, that's what Carthay circle does. It's like, it's kind of this like 
explosion of a style, right? Yeah. And it's it's a it's a super clean, brand new, curated <laughs> version of you know what, like nineteen twenties, like yeah. Los Angeles. Um, where so I, I feel like that's that's part of it, you know, is is hopefully creating spaces that um you're you're creating that for people. Yeah, well, I want to pull it back to the audience because we're talking about you know creating you're creating these these curated experiences for people, and then there's also this this thing where sometimes the audience wants to you know control the experience a little bit more, mm-hmm. and in some ways like the stronger or a piece like the stronger, they don't have anywhere to go. So like they start trying to like push and pull on you as a performer. Mm-hmm. Um, the other side of it is, you know, I mean, I, I, I went, did you guys see uh, the day shall declare it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I want to, I got, I got like, I got to see it twice with two totally different kinds of audiences. And one was like an early audience uh, that was sort of more what I would probably consider like the initiated crowd. But also like I was, um, it was my first time and I noticed that the crowd was sort of like gacking up on one side of the room. So I decided like, Oh, I'm going to go on the other side of the room because I can. And then other people kind of follow up suit. And then the second time I was like, well, I had already seen it from that side of the room. So I want to stay on this side of the room. And the crowd stayed and kind of naturally formed a proscenium mm-hmm. space, yeah. which was not what the space wanted, the, the piece wanted to be at all. And so there was like traffic flow problems. And I got to really thinking about how there's this thing where people the audience at large doesn't know what they can do, let alone what's kind of crossing the line. And I know in, in, in so many of these things, in like alternate reality games and a lot of the, the design space around here, people get these arguments about, well, well, it's a broken design if like you can go somewhere where you don't belong and whatnot, which parts of me feels like there's that's a little going too far. But there's something about this idea of how do you – how do you shape the audience's expectation? How do you lead them into being into maybe like the right place without necessarily dragging them to a spot and slamming yeah. them down? That makes me think a lot about just kind of the idea, like like video games, right? Yeah. Where it's so you have sandbox games that um, you know uh, Assassin's Creed, where you really can get in your your pirate ship and go wherever, right? Um, but then, you know, uh, I, and I'm not a big video game person, but I hang out with some people who play him. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, they had me start playing Tomb Raider cause they were mm. like, I think you'll appreciate the new Tomb Raider oh, new with yeah, its, yeah. with, and they were like, you know, I think you could get into this. The story's interesting. Um, they've kind of taken a new take on the main character, making her more vulnerable. But um, it's a very linear game from what I can tell. It's, yes, you can kind of go off the path, but there is a path. Yeah. And to move forward in the story, you have to follow the path. Yeah. And they kind of make it, you know, they've designed it in a way that it feels like that path is in a giant world. And you feel like you can go off the path, but really you're always going forward on the yeah. path. And I think that's, you know, I think that's, you know, particularly in this upcoming piece, um, it, it does have, the piece has a path. Uh, there's kind of a, a before and after the piece section that's a little more open, it's more ambient kind of characters, mm-hmm. um, kind of freely in the space that you could engage with. But the bulk of the show is this somewhat path guided experience mm. um, and not guided like you have a person with a flag walking you through the piece <laughs> but kind of like you know a dark ride at Disneyland yes. where you're in the cart and um, you're with these characters and suddenly you're you go through two doors and you're in a new space with new characters yes. and, the, and, the, and even if you wanted to stay in that back space you can't 
the story's moving forward and you're moving forward with it. And, uh, and so I love that idea the, the dark ride. Cause when I try and explain this stuff to people who don't know, I'll ask them, have you been to Disneyland? And yeah. They say, yes. It's like, okay. Imagine that Peter Pan broke down, he got out of the pirate ship and, <laughs> and he could he walk and he go anywhere. Yeah. Welcome to Immersive Theater. Yeah. <laughs> Except then the pirate ship gets fixed, you get back on, <laughs> and you go to the next thing. Yeah. Um, and so like in this next piece, you know, there is no traveling back. There's no, oh, I wish I could have spent more time there. You'd have to do the whole thing again yeah. to spend more time there. Yeah. Um, so there are different sets of rules, but um, but I think it's also, I mean, it's it's what we love talking about it. I think it's a totally fascinating It's something that we right think about with every piece that we design is how how do we create the structure for the audience so that they kind of, they know how how they function in this piece. Uh, because in the past, we've definitely done shows that have been on more of a, of a track and people want it to be a a sandbox piece and they'll just take off, you know, and it's like, okay, maybe we didn't do our job at the beginning to kind of set up the structure. So we always look for ways to give you as the audience a clue to kind of what's your role in the piece. Is my role that I'm I'm going to be talking to you or is my role that I'm going to be watching but sitting next to you? Is Do I get to choose what happens? Do Am I following? We're trying to figure out ways to really make it clear but not make it feel like we're telling you what to do. Yeah, and I would say, you know, in our creative process, with each show, the conversation about the audience becomes way more extensive. Yeah. Um, so as we become a little more confident in how to build these scenes, how to, you know, how we devise our scripts, on some level as the kind of the creative building the show side um you know, we just get more experience as a company working together. Um, more and more we talk about the audience now and, and what their experience is, what is the setup for them, how are we... And I think with this sort of work, you, I mean, you have... If you are not talking about your audience um, in the creative process, like, you're even with the best of intentions, it's going gonna, it's gonna to miss... Something's going to be vastly missing when it gets to, to being performed or put up. Well, and there's there's one level where it's just a matter of the mechanics and the issues of flow, this sort of user experience design issues of like, how do we get the end user to know what it is they're supposed to do? But then there's another layer, and I'm curious about how much you get to talk about this, where because the audience has the potential to have their perspective shift based on the relationship they are in to the performers, to the materials, to the space, how much do you talk about the perspective this perspectual shifts as a as a narrative tool. Oh, I mean, we we definitely yeah. talk about it a lot, and this this upcoming so, piece, we really play with it a lot. Um, the role of the audience member does shift throughout the piece, dramatically. and, and yeah. so the way they're and and it, it, for us, we're excited about this experiment. What what happens if in one in one scene? I mean, I don't want to give anything away. No, but yeah. I, I don't want you. To give it. I'm sitting here being yeah. like, no, it's but what is it? What is it to go from observer to potentially a voice in the piece? What is it yeah. to to go from um, you know from from sitting in a chair to suddenly you know up on your feet crossing the void of a space? You know what? Right. And 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 you you did mention again. You know, I, 
part of it is we do see the experience starting the moment you arrive. Mm -hmm. And that's hard because there sometimes are logistical things people need to do, like we need to take your ticket. And, um, and that is something that we're even trying to figure out, like how can that feel not like a little tag outside the piece? Like how are you already starting to get immersed in the world? How do we, how do we make getting the kind of instructions of engagement feel like part of the piece? And I know video games do that, you know, right? It's like no one reads the instruction manual. I don't even know if they print instruction they manuals anymore. <laughs> but, um, but the game has to teach you how... To play it now for people who play a lot, it gets frustrating because you're playing a fourth game by a company and it's like you're uh, having to relearn how to um, this again to, yeah. to, to, you know, track or yeah. climb a building. And it's like, I, I know how to do that. But for the person who's never played before, these are learning the fundamental rules that they're going to follow then for the next, yeah. you know, in the terms of game, I don't know, 25 hours in the yeah. terms of us for the next, you know, 30 to 40 minutes. And I think what's interesting for us is we obviously we have a style but the form changes with each show so even if you come see five of our shows the six shows probably going to be a little different unless you're seeing a repeat show like we've we've uh, done Ebenezer twice now we've done the stronger a couple times and there are other shows that we might bring back at some point maybe one day we'll bring back kitchen sugar bullet blank I don't know We'll see. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and so man looks at me like, <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, but you know, but it's true. So. But, and with each time, the, the, the kind of instructions for the audience does change. And we're, we're constantly trying to try out different ways, you know, for the audience to be dropped in or let in to that experience. There's about, 20 other things that I'd love to talk to you guys about, but I know you've got rehearsal to get to. So I'm going to, I want to, I want to lock it off with something, this session off with something that I find very specific and interesting to what you've done. And it's a, it's a technically a marketing thing that you do, which is when, when I saw the stronger, I was given a, a note and a key at the end. Like that was the, um, that was, that was the program. And then the key unlocked almost literally, but definitely very appropriately metaphorically, unlocked an experience in Ebenezer, which was with Jacob Marley, who, of course, is running around in the chains, hence the key. Uh, and I got a little one-on-one -on -one that was uh, a teaser, almost like getting the trailer embedded, which I guess they technically do in Avengers, but I won't spoil that for you guys. Um a little teaser for the next piece embedded into the current piece and then was also given um, a, a little tchotchke to take into that. I guess it was the invitation to Johnny. Uh, although I don't think, it, I don't think I have to bring it with me or it unlocks anything, uh, but I got to look at the thing again, but this idea, Oh, <laughs> we, we, I, I want to bring it with me. Uh, if we give you something, you should always bring, bring it with back. you. Okay. It's good. But, uh, so, all right, and that's good. So, like, that's one of that's one of the meta rules of your company is if if we bring give you something, bring it back to us because you'll get something in exchange. So, where did that idea come from? And, and I mean, it, it, not to go back to video games, which is funny because again, I I'm not a big player, but I I have a there's I think there's so much inspiration in the the form for theater or for this sort of theater. And, um, you know, in video games, you collect a lot of stuff, right? And some of that stuff is, you know, an herb that 
you're never going to use, but others unlock these really exciting things. If you take that right thing to the right person, and a lot, I feel like a lot of that content isn't content you need to complete to win the game or experience the primary storyline, but it can be, you know, take you down this really exciting offshoot. Yeah. Um, but with that, we kind of started thinking about like, um, you know, it's almost like souvenirs, but also then you're, you're in the club, right? Like you've got this thing. And now when you come, A, you know about our I next show, but, <laughs> but B, you, you, you can unlock, it, it's paying off return, return of visitors, right? Yeah. You know, if you make a commitment to us, you make a commitment to seeing our work, we're going to try to make, you know, I mean, we want to make a commitment to everyone, but for the re- returning people, it's like, we're going to try to make your experience even a little bigger. And um, so in Johnny, for example, we do have content that if you bring these, these souvenirs that you got at Ebenezer to Johnny that will unlock this content. Now, this isn't content you need to experience to experience the main storyline that is the experience. So anyone who doesn't have it will still have a very rich experience. The DLC is on the disc. <laughs> the DLC is on the disc. But, you know, as a creator, I have to say, you know, I the, the spin-off content, we always try to create something that we think is great, um, and that we would want to, you know, like I definitely, uh, with Ebenezer, you know, the key unlocks something that personally I would have liked to see, but it also was not essential yeah. to your overall experience. And I feel like I, I'm very excited about the, as we call them, Easter eggs, uh, yeah. um, what we've created for Johnny for that as well. Yeah. So, Well, I felt like in Ebenezer, I felt like it, it, it became clear to me particularly once I started to know the pieces together of what you were doing with Johnny, I was like, oh, that, that felt like I was getting like a trailer for Johnny in a Ebenezer. So it felt like an ugly pulled sort of yeah. aside and it was compartmentalized. And I guess that, that's that's one question is like that that balance between how much of, of the unlock should be the tease for where you're going and how much of the unlock is is currently in the moment, which, mind you, is the exact same issue that Marvel Studios faces with how they construct their actual blockbusters. Mm-hmm. Like, how much should we be teasing our next thing, yeah. and how much should we just be having people enjoy this movie they're watching? Well, and I think yeah. it's a mix of both. I think you mm-hmm. want a little that's forward-moving, and you want a little that's that's about expanding the current experience. And, you know, I think when we, when we named the company, the Speakeasy Society, uh, you know, we weren't... We weren't thinking too hard about it at the time, but I think it does fit with the yeah. name. Like we want uh, both the creators, the people we collaborate with, but also the audience to feel like they're part of something. Um, you know that you belong to this kind of thing, and that you are a part of it. And it is with that kind of um, the reward of return, you know, viewership or following um, following us from show to show is. We want you to feel like you're part of this. You're kind of in on the secret, so to speak. Um, And that, I mean, I guess going back to like childhood things, right? Like I always wanted to be a part of a secret society, (laughs) you know, and have you like mysteries and and have cool, exciting experiences that not that maybe not everyone knows about or gets to have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I mean, I do talk about the immersive audience as a whole as being the initiated. Partly because I love, you know, when Bane goes, we are initiated. And also partly because there's that sense of like once you've – you when you sit down across from someone who hasn't been to sleep no more or hasn't seen Ebenezer or, or got to see the Day Shall Declare It and you start to try to explain it, you just go, oh, I can't. The words are going to fail because it's not about the words. It's about being there. And I can tell you about how they moved or I can like ape – 
the motions or I can give you an intellectual construct and all of it pales in comparison to actually experiencing it when it when it's done right. One more question about the the Easter eggs. Um, I saw the line progression. I got the key. Now I have the other thing um, or one of the other things. Were there other ingress points for people who didn't have the key to get the 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 Easter egg unlock for you're nodding your head. Yeah. Yes. Um, if you came across the ghost of Christmas present during the ghost of Christmas future section in the bar in Ebenezer, he had some very light teaser Johnny content with poker chips. Oh wow! So I missed that. So great. If you have a poker chip or a bullet casing. Oh, From Ebenezer, <laughs> you should definitely bring it to Johnny and try to figure out who you need to give it to. Oh, wow. Wow. I won't even ask anything. <laughs> uh, that is actually the perfect note. Um, we'll do this late night talk show style. Uh, Johnny wins when and where. And, oh, no, you pulled their blanking. <laughs> we need to get the dates right. <laughs> it is the Thursday, Friday, Saturday after Memorial Day weekend, which is the long pause. 28th, 29th, and 30th of May. And then the 5th and 6th of June, Friday, the first Friday and Saturday of June. Um, 8 p.m. at the American Legion in Pasadena. It's in Old Town. Um, it's an exciting space. Just the venue itself, I'd say, is worth a visit, but it'll be even better because we'll be there. And, and, and you should know it's also a great place um, maybe before your show ticket time to come and have a drink there. There is a, a there's full a bar, bar in space. with very reasonably priced drinks, which I think very is Very reasonably priced. So, Ooh, I, I, like, I like that sound yeah. of very reasonably priced. Very plan maybe to come a little early or to stay a little bit after your show time because there might be more to see as All well. Right. And for those of you who are still figuring out when to go, I'm going on that first Friday. So if you want to see me at the bar and trade notes, uh, that's a good time. Not that that's an extra feature, but hey, you know. <laughs> um, tickets are available on Brown Paper Ticket. Again, it's called The Johnny Cycle, The Quick and the Dead. It's part one. Uh, we're going to do a three-part trilogy over the next year and a half. And uh, we hope you'll come join us. Yeah. And uh, it's the speakeasysociety.com. Right? Speakeasy. Speakeasy Society. Speakeasy Society. No, the. No, the. It's the Speakeasy Soch, S O C, on Twitter. Twitter, yeah. All right, so that's all you need to know for now. Uh, ladies, thank you so much for being on the, the official inaugural edition of the podcast, and there is no doubt in my mind uh, you will be back. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the first official episode of the No Proscenium podcast. In our next episode, we'll talk with independent artist Jamie Peterson, the creator of last year's At an Appointed Time. In the meanwhile, if you're not a subscriber, you can sign up at nopersinium.com and receive one of our newsletters featuring immersive and interactive event listings. There are three different editions, Los Angeles, New York City, and the San Francisco Bay Area. LA and New York come out twice a month, and SF ships monthly. The newsletters are free. Sign up for one, two, or all three at nopersinium.com. 
Between issues and podcasts, you can find us on Twitter at NoPriscinium. And we've got a collection at medium.com slash, you won't believe this, NoPriscinium. It's full of reviews and essays about immersive theater and its ilk. And don't forget the Patreon campaign, which keeps this show on the air and helps make it better. That's at patreon.com slash nopersinium. There's a pattern here. Until next time, this has been Noah Nelson for No Persinium, and I'll see you at the show.